Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Good morning. Welcome to Know Your Bible. We're glad you're back this week as we try to answer some more of your questions and help you know your Bible better. That's the way this program works as we take viewers' questions phone number and a website at the bottom of the screen. You can use those anytime to get in touch with us. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about. We get uh, direct questions. What's this verse mean? Uh, does this verse really mean that? Uh, what's this doctrine teach? And we get a lot of life questions about family and current events. People wonder, what's the Bible say about this topic? And we're happy to try to provide some answers to those. Sometimes we get questions that we just say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about that. Uh, but usually the Bible has a principle for almost everything. So we're happy to share that with you. And uh, let me introduce the gentleman that helps me each week, and then we'll get started here. Toby Levering's back. Good morning, Toby. Hi, Steve. I'm glad you're here and ready to go. And uh, we've got a question for our viewers first. We always give them a little one to see if they know some Bible trivia. Uh, this one's kind of a hairy question. Uh, what Bible character was very hairy? And we'll give you the answer to that at the end of the program, see if you know who that character was. All right, first question today. I drew it, so let's get going. Does Acts 21-25 forbid blood transfusions? Now, I know there is a religion that teaches blood transfusions are against the law of God, and they use this verse for that. Acts 21-25, let's look at it on the screen. It says, as for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed from idols, uh, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Okay, so they should abstain from blood. Now, don't eat blood is what that means. Here's the original law in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 26. God told the Israelites, wherever you live, you must not eat the blood of any bird or animal. Okay, so Jewish people very careful about draining the blood from a body. The, uh, even today, kosher meat has to be drained properly, and the rabbi has to oversee it, make sure the blood's gotten out of the body before it, the meat's processed, and all of that. So that's where all this comes from, is the people were told not to eat blood. Now, the, the Gentile ruling that I showed you first, what was happening was some new Christians from the Gentile community had become Christians. And before that, everybody was a Jew that was a Christian. And so the Gentiles said, well, do we have to keep all these Jewish laws too? And there was an argument about which ones do they have to keep and which ones don't they? And so the, the apostles in Jerusalem made a ruling and they sent this letter to them and they said, no, here's the only things you have to take care of. If a meat's been sacrificed to an idol, don't eat that. Uh, don't drink blood or eat blood and a couple other rules. Those are what you follow, but other than that, just be a Christian. So that's the story. Now, eating blood, here's the point, is completely different from getting a transfusion. 
Uh, of course, they didn't know about transfusions in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, but God knew about them. And he didn't say anything about don't put blood in people's body. In fact, he did say the life is in the blood. And we've figured out recently that, yeah, you put blood into people and you keep them alive. Uh, before that, we drained blood from people and we killed them quicker. Uh, but we didn't know any better. Now we know that giving people blood helps. So that's not eating blood. It's transfusing it into the body. <clears throat> the reason God gave that rule uh, was for health reasons. It's not good to eat blood. There's contaminants in it, and that's where the diseases are a lot of times. I learned something just the other day I never knew before, Toby. Uh, my wife had some sinus surgery, and mm -hmm. after the surgery she was nauseous, and the, uh, the nurse said, yeah, you're just going to have to throw that up. Uh, it's blood that drained down in your stomach, uh -huh. and the body doesn't assimilate blood. Uh -huh. So it'll okay. just sit there and do you huh. no good, so the body wants to get rid of it. Huh. So, uh, And God knew that, so he said, don't eat blood. But that's not a transfusion. No, Acts twenty one twenty five does not prohibit transfusions. It's kind of like God designed the body, and He might know something <laughs> yeah, about it. <laughs> he, he had it figured out, I think. All right. Somebody wants to know about Melchizedek or I'd Melchizedek. Like, I'd like to know about Melchizedek. I would too. <laughs> Viewer says Melchizedek is mentioned all through the Bible. Who exactly is he? Why is he important? And how could he not have any parents? Okay. Well. Melchizedek, I will take exception to your statement that he's mentioned all through the Bible. Uh, to my study and research, I could only find five places that he is mentioned. Uh, one, which we'll look at together in Genesis 14, 18. One in the book of Psalms and three times in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Genesis 14, 18 says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. <clears throat> so, what's interesting about Melchizedek is what we don't know about him in Scripture just doesn't give us a lot of detail. He was a king priest of some type, and he preceded any sort of Levitical priesthood that was established later on under the Mosaical Covenant. And that is intriguing to us and also to the Jews of that time because they were different. The Levitical priesthood was by, you know, it was, it was what family or what tribe you were born into. The Levites were of the tribe of Levi, and, and they, when you were born into that family, that tribe, you just automatically assumed the role. You were trained and brought up. The, the, the young men were to be priests and to serve in the temple and to perform all the duties of worship, and that was their role in life. But in Genesis and later in Psalms, and then, and then the Hebrew writer will bring it up several times, he talks about a priesthood that existed before the uh, old system of the Levitical priesthood existed. And uh, who he was, we don't have a lot of insight into. We know he was very important because Abram, who was you know, the, the father of the faithful, came and brought him a tithe. And, and Abram was a rich guy. And so he gave this tithe to him and, and Melchizedek blessed him. So he's the first priest that we have on record, but he's different than all the other priests that would come after. He was different than their idea of what a priest was and what a priest did. And, and I think that's the point that the Hebrew writer is making in bringing up this strange character. 
is that, listen, you understand priesthood in a certain way, but there, there was a priest who came before the priesthood who is different than you understand it, uh, who is different than you understand that role, who did things differently, and who is outside of your you know, box that you put what a priest does. And so he's pointing this out in the larger context of the book of Hebrews to say that uh, the law of grace and truth is better than the old ways. And, and that's this theme that comes throughout the book of Hebrews, better, 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 better worship, uh, better uh, rules, uh, a better way of living is what we're promised in Christ. And so I think that's the point he's making, not to get <coughs> caught up in the details. Now, we'll look at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, and this is the part that confuses people a little bit. <clears throat> then this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Well, some people look at that and say he must have been some mystical angelic being. Um, I, I'm, I don't personally subscribe to that. I think what he's saying here is Melchizedek is in the record, but there's no record of him in the genealogy. Uh, and if you were, a, especially if you were a priest, if you were a Jew, you needed to prove your uh, heritage, your lineage, all the way back to Abraham. And so here's this priest who, who can't do that. We don't have a record of him. It doesn't mean he didn't have a, a father or mother. It means there's no record of this genealogy. And, and so... He, Again, he's making the point that Melchizedek is a, a special individual with a unique role. Uh, we don't know all the details about him, but he had a unique role in God's plan. And he's pointing him to the great high priest, the better high priest, that being Jesus Christ. So uh, it's an interesting study, but don't get too caught up in the, the details. His lineage is unknown because, well, if, if it's unknown in Scripture, then it's not relevant to Scripture. And he's simply pointing the way to the most high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. So, hope I explained my way around that a little bit. <laughs> hey, I, I, don't, I don't know any more about Melchizedek yeah, than I did. I don't either. <laughs> he, he's a kind of mysterious character. But yep. All we know is what we know is what's in there. Yep. Luckily, we don't have to be specialists <clears throat> exactly. on Melchizedek. I'm uh, thankful for that. All right. Viewer wants to know, if you can lose salvation, does that mean Satan's more powerful than Jesus? Well, if you've been watching this program be very long, you know that we get asked occasionally about, do you believe in once saved, always saved? Uh, do you believe the Calvinistic doctrine of eternal security of the saints? And we say, no, salvation can be lost. It can be given up. Uh, you have to be careful and continue serving Jesus and all that. Uh, and this viewer said, aha, if you can lose salvation, that means Satan more powerful than Jesus. And I'm sure this viewer's got a verse ready to show me in case I don't answer it just right. So I'll just go ahead and show you the verse uh, that proves this viewer knows the truth. No, Satan is not more powerful than Jesus. Let's look at Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. Paul specifically says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nobody, nothing, no power, no demon, no anything uh, is powerful enough 
to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. So there's the answer. No, Satan is not more powerful than Jesus. Uh, we're in his hand and he's got us and we're safe uh, and we totally believe that. Now, the trouble is there's so many warnings in the New Testament that say if you think you're uh, safe, be careful. Satan will tempt you. Don't get drawn away. Don't fall away from grace. Don't trust in anything else. Now, what that means is not that Satan can take our salvation away from us, but we can forfeit it. That's the, probably the best word, is we can walk away from Jesus. Uh, Jesus won't hold on to us at all costs if we decide to go another way. If we decide to go back to the world like Demas, a friend of Paul's, did, we can do that. We can forfeit our salvation. Satan's happy to welcome us. He's, he's thrilled when we do that. Uh, but that's the difference. No. As long as we're walking in the light, as long as we're living with Jesus and for Him, uh, nobody's going to take it away from us. In that sense, yes, we are eternally <laughs> secure. But we can walk away. We can forfeit it. Uh, we can't have it stolen from us. And even the word lose salvation has a bad connotation. It's like kind of you're walking down the street one day and all of a sudden you look around and say, whoa, where did my salvation go? I lost it. Uh, those are bad terms. <clears throat> Probably the best one is you can forfeit it if you choose to. Uh, but nobody's going to take it away from you. Satan is not more powerful than Jesus. Uh, as long as you're walking in the light, you've got all the security you ever need and you ought to be totally confident just like Paul was. Uh, I'm going to heaven. So hope that answers that one. Uh, let's talk about a good way to study the Bible for just a moment. We answer a few questions each week and hopefully that helps you know something about your Bible. But we've got some free Bible study materials that we'll be happy to send you in the mail and you can learn a lot more about your Bible. Uh, you can get familiar with it and you can answer a lot of these questions that we answer uh, all by yourself once you learn how your Bible operates. Uh, so we're happy to provide that. There's a set on the screen now, a set of lessons. There are eight lessons in this series. And this is just a good introduction to the Bible. It's a basic study. It starts with the Old Testament and the New Testament. helps you understand the difference between those two big parts of your Bible. And then we've got some other topics that you cover. Once you get through this one, we've got some more advanced topics that we're happy to send uh, to you so you can study. So we can keep you studying quite a while with Know Your Bible study tools. A uh, great way to form a regular habit of Bible study. And we try to help hold you accountable a little bit by scoring your lessons for you and sending them back and forth. We take care of the postage. All of that's free. So it's a great offer. Very helpful. If you want to know your Bible, use that phone number or that website. We'll get it started for you. All right. Toby, it's your turn. Got a love me, like me question. Okay. Uh, is it okay in God's eyes to tell someone you love them but you don't like them. Well, that's, uh, this is a difficult question because I don't know the context of the situation. I mean, this could be a teenager calling in saying, you know, they've got one likes the other or one, but they don't want to be boyfriend, girlfriend. It could be a set of best friends. It, it could be um, uh, somebody who's in a coworker situation uh, who's making advances. It could be uh, it could be a couple who's been married for 40 years, <laughs> and they're not uh, things aren't going well. So I, I'm please take my advice and counsel and scripture with a grain of salt because I don't know the situation I'm speaking to. Uh, first, I'll say if you're a married couple, 
this is not something to be answered in uh, three minutes or less on a television program. Please go get Christian counseling. Just get a good Christian counselor. If you don't know of one, uh, you can call the number on the screen. We can probably refer you to a good one uh, and maybe help you out in that way. Uh, don't don't try to solve this through uh, through television. If this is not if this is something outside of marriage and it's just a relational issue, uh, then I think you can do this, but you got to do it properly. Um, so let me give you some general advice. Uh, number one, practice the golden rule. Okay, treat that other person the way you'd want to be treated. If they they love you, but or if, if you if you they love you but you don't like them. Uh, you know, just let them off gently, I'll, I'll say, and uh, and just do that with respect and tenderness and don't be rude about it and all that. Uh, secondly, be direct. There's so much in this culture that's behind a screen, whether it's a television screen, a TV screen, a, an iPhone, uh, there's this barrier of a screen that, that is interfering with personal relations. Do this directly. Third, you know, be honest. Uh, just be honest, speak the truth in love, and, and don't don't dance around the issue and, and don't attack them personally. Um, secondly, be, be gentle. Uh, this will be a hard message to hear for whoever's got to receive it. So uh, be, do your best to be gentle and tactful. And finally, think it through. Don't just haphazardly uh, throw this together in the next, or say the first thing that comes to your mind. Sit down, write out what you want to say, write your concerns, and just think through it and call them up on the telephone or take them to lunch and just explain what your concerns are. Let's look at a verse together from Scripture from Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So, it's my general counsel to you. I hope you'll use it wisely in the situation you're asking about. Well, righty, thank you, Toby. I was just thinking, I have a trivia question at the start of the show, and maybe we need a Dear Abby column yeah, in the middle of it. A little advice dear, column. Dear, dear, dear Toby, a little relationship <laughs> advice. Pretty good there, buddy. We'll All see. right. We'll see. Uh, viewers one worrying about musical instruments. Uh, where does it say musical instruments can't be used in worship? Now, some of our new viewers may say, what kind of strange question is that? Uh, the reason this viewer asked that is because Churches of Christ, uh, we sing a cappella. We do not use musical instruments in worship. A cappella means chapel music. It's church music. It's the way it was for most of the history of the church. Uh, and we still do that today, along with the Greek Orthodox Church and a number of other uh, religions. They sing a cappella without musical accompaniment. And this viewer wants to know, all right, where does it say you can't do that? Show me a verse. All right. Um, number one, it doesn't say you can't do that. Uh, but let me point out, it also doesn't say you can't sacrifice goats uh, in church. Uh, nobody today wants to sacrifice goats uh, because that's an old practice. We, we don't do that anymore. Well, same thing. It doesn't say don't do it. Uh, so you got to be sure you're not straining out everything when you use that argument. Uh, we in the Churches of Christ believe we should do what the New Testament says. We want to restore the New Testament church, and the New Testament says sing. It doesn't say anywhere to play instruments. It doesn't say anything about musical accompaniment. 
the early church didn't use musical instruments, so we just sing. Uh, we think it's a good thing to do. We like it uh, better, in fact. We think it works a whole lot better for worship. Uh, you can hear the words and understand what you're saying. Lots of good reasons for it. But main reason is the New Testament says sing, so we sing. Now, let me give you just a little bit of history for somebody that thinks no musical instruments. How weird is that? Uh, let's talk about some history first. Acapella music, let's look at this on the screen, is the historical Christian practice. Instruments were first used in Christian worship about the 10th century and were not commonly used in the Catholic Church until the 13th century. They are still not used in the Eastern Orthodox Church and are a very recent addition to almost all Protestant churches. Now that's history. Uh, if you think musical instruments have been around forever in the Christian Church, no, it's just the last 100, 200 years at the most. Uh, acapella was what the church did for a long time. Now, some of you may think, well, that's not true of my church. I'm Catholic or Lutheran or whatever. Let me show you what a couple of people said. Thomas Aquinas, 1250, our church does not use musical instruments as harps and psalteries to praise God. Martin Luther in the 1500, the organ in the worship of God is an ensign of Baal. Martin Luther kind of danced around it. Yeah, he? he said, no, you, <laughs> don't, don't, you don't use musical <laughs> instruments in worship. Uh, if you happen to be a Presbyterian or a Methodist, listen to this. John Calvin in the 1500s said, it, instrumental music, is no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of candles, or revival of other shadows of the law. And John Wesley in the 1700s said, I have no objection to the organ in our chapels provided it is neither seen nor heard. Okay, uh, we're talking into the 1700s here and the leaders of all Christian denominations uh, were right where the churches of Christ are. No, you, you don't use musical instruments in New Testament worship. You sing a cappella. That's what God expects. That's what the people in the first century did. So that's what we're going to do today. Well, it changed. People started introducing it and used it. And now it's become where everybody thinks it's the normal way to do it. But no, uh, like I said, a cappella means church music. So we still sing church music in the churches of Christ. <laughs> Let me uh, invite you to visit a church of Christ near you. And if you go to this one in uh, Springfield, Missouri, uh, you'll find that they don't have musical instruments in their worship. They sing a cappella. And I bet you'll enjoy hearing their a cappella singing. Uh, the Watermill Church of Christ in Springfield, Missouri is a supporter of ours in that area. It helps keep us on the air there and communicates with our viewers there. So drop in sometime and uh, visit them. I know that uh, you'd be warmly welcomed. And if you're searching for a church home, uh, I think it would be a good one to try out. Uh, of course, if you know somebody that attends Watermill, tell them you watch Know Your Bible and you appreciate it. I know they'd appreciate that. Any place you live, look for Church of Christ near you and drop in and give them a visit sometime. All right, question about giving. Toby? Yes, a viewer asked the question, I don't know the principles of giving. What are they? Well, uh, this is a very uh, exhaustive question because the Bible has a lot to say about money and how to use money. Now, on religious TV programs, you, you hear a lot of those verses explained, often used out of context uh, just to advance their ministry or sell the book or whatever. Uh, but the Bible really has the best wisdom on how God wants you to use your money to save and give and earn and spend and so forth. So that what I'm going to give you is just approaching giving, but it doesn't really even touch 
the, the, the tip of the iceberg on the subject. So uh, very quickly, a, a few principles to consider is first, it is a private matter. Jesus said, when you give, don't do it to, to receive accolades and praises from men. Don't do it in front of a crowd. Uh, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And what, what he's, the principle there is, giving is a matter of the heart. And so when you're giving, it's not to be done for what everybody else thinks. It's for what, what God sees. And that's the beauty of it. When he praised the widow, the poor widow, who just gave a very small amount, but she was giving everything she had. He, of course, being God, knew her heart. And that's the beauty of giving when it's done correctly. Uh, secondly, Jesus said in Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And uh, you know this, that if you've ever <laughs> received a gift versus the feeling you get when you give a gift and the joy that it brings and, and the way that it, it, it beautifies that person's life and brings into a person's life the blessings that you have, uh, it is a blessing to give more than it is to receive. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, uh, the Apostle Paul said, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided to give in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So in those two verses, he says a lot of things. Giving is an opportunity. It's an opportunity uh, to grow spiritually, and uh, it's a measure of the heart. It's a heart matter. It shouldn't be done under forced. It shouldn't be done out of just because you feel like you have to. Um, and it, there's a, an attitude and a spirit that goes along with it. And so you can you can grow in that gift as well. Let's finish out this question. Uh, certainly haven't exhausted all of it, but let's uh, let's finish out with this verse. But since you excel in everything, in faith in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. It, it really truly is a grace and a blessing, and you'll be blessed if you learn to grow in it, and that God will bless you if you do. All right, thank you, Toby. Uh, last question I think we got time for, a viewer says, if a person commits suicide, can they still go to heaven? Well, very... Uh, heart-wrenching situation, of course, and a difficult thing to talk about. I don't want to endorse uh, suicide in any way or come across as uh, heartless about anything, but uh, the direct answer to the question that I would give is yes, well, they can still go to heaven. Now, uh, let's look at it this way, and I know that in ages past, they, people were taught that no, suicide is a mortal sin and it's murder and it's self-murder and you don't have a chance to repent, so obviously you're going to hell uh, and all that. That's very difficult teaching because it's a matter of the heart and the mind and what a person knows. And in one sense, and I think you'll understand this, anyone who hurts themselves, who takes their life, is not in their right mind in a, to some degree. Now, what degree, we can't tell. We don't know. But somebody does know, and that's God. Uh, the chapter, uh, verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says this, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? We don't know what people are thinking. We don't know the condition of their heart, their mind. Suicides many times are a huge shock to the family and people. They had no idea that the person was thinking that direction. But God does know 
their mind and their heart. Uh, he, he will understand he is a merciful God and he'll do exactly the right thing. So my answer is yes, they can. Uh, I'm not in the business of making that ruling, uh, but I believe that they can. All right, last uh, trivia question. Uh, the hairy question in the Bible, what Bible character was very hairy? Uh, there's a guy named Esau back in Genesis 27. He was a twin and Esau was red and hairy. You can read that story. We're glad you've been with us today. We hope you come back next week. Till then, you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.